We thank you that we have one another to sharpen each other. Thank you that we have your word in our heart language. We thank you that we have your Holy Spirit to direct and enlighten the anointing within us. We thank you that we live in a society where we are free to meet like this. And our Heavenly Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are under persecution at this time and who, if they met like this, that just would not be possible. Uh, Heavenly Father, strengthen them, we pray, by your grace as they stand faithfully for our Lord Jesus. We know that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of your church, and we pray, Father, for the growth of your church in areas which are under severe persecution. And we pray that you'd comfort our brothers and sisters and strengthen them. Make us, Heavenly Father, good stewards of a day like today, denied to so many but granted to us. Help us, therefore, to turn today in repentance and trust in you as we work our way through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll finish uh, on chapter 8, and we will get in this section to chapter 9, because chapter 9 is our Bible study, which starts at uh, quarter to one. I've just looked at chapter 5 on page 942, which is the first therefore of Romans, where Paul, having uh, shown us how we are justified by faith in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, now moves on and shows how God demonstrates his love. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, he says, uh, we have three things. Number one, we know that God is at peace with us. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which was more not the sense that we have of being at peace with God, but knowing that he is at peace with us. Through him, secondly, verse 2, we have also obtained access into this grace in which we stand. So we now are in a relationship of grace, not a relationship of earning, not a relationship in which we receive this as an award. God is never in our debt. It's always contrary to our deserving. But it is an unconditional relationship so that you are always in the right with God as a person who is in Christ. And thirdly, he says, verse 3, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so we know from Romans chapter 8 that Paul is going to talk more about what this glory means, that all that Christ inherits, we also inherit. But he says more than that, notice, uh, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why do we rejoice in suffering? Because we enjoy pain? No, because of where suffering leads. Suffering produces endurance character and character produces in turn hope. So the suffering church, if you've ever visited the suffering church, you will know that the suffering church is a joyous church. It's a church filled with hope and uh, the very suffering uh, prepares people and and, and, um, develops in them the hope of glory, the hope of heaven, that what is coming is better. And notice verse 5 is your key verse. Hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And notice that verse 8 says that God shows his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Now notice Paul's argument. He's saying because we are justified by faith, three things follow. I'll put it on the board. It may well be better to understand. Because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God access to a relationship of grace and we have hope of the glory of God but now he goes on about this hope and says that God loves us and has given us the Holy Spirit and God loves us and has demonstrated that love on the cross so that this love guarantees hope fulfilled and then he comes down further and repeats this argument much more. So we'll just look at that very briefly. Um, You will see there in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So he's saying if God does the relatively... Uh, if he does the greater thing, then he'll do the relatively lesser thing. If when you are an enemy, 
you were reconciled to God and became his friend. Now you are his friend. He will save you. So if my father says to me, look, when you get married, I'll give you a beautiful home and I'll give you a a grass cutter and he gives me the grass cutter, will he give me the home? Well, I'm not sure. But if he gives me the home first, will he give me the grass cutter? Well, I don't really care whether he gives me the grass, he's given me the home. But see, it's the much more argument. Now, notice what Paul is saying. That great love of God, and notice here, he says there, Chapter 3, God demonstrates his justice. Here, God demonstrates his love. But notice, it's not love in isolation. Verse 5 tells us, great, great love ensures that hope will be fulfilled. Now, do you have a hope of the glory of God? Yes. Will that hope be fulfilled? Now, just imagine we have a younger son who's now 28, but when he was at school, they'd do your homework and we're, at the end of the school term, we'll go and have fun. And at the end of the school term, the night before, he says, Dad, we're going to go and have fun tomorrow because I've done my homework all term. Now, imagine if I said I didn't say this, but imagine if I did. The next morning when we come on, Dad, we're going to have fun because I've done my homework all term. I say, ha, I was only fooling. We're not going to have fun. I was only saying to get you to do your homework. You see, I wouldn't say that. But you see, that's not loving. God doesn't get our hopes up of glory to come, and when you die, see them dashed. See, what is the fruit of justification? The immediate fruit is that God is at peace with you. The ongoing fruit is that I stand in grace. The ultimate fruit is that I have hope that beyond the grave, I have a great inheritance waiting for me. How do I know? Because God loves me. How do I know? Because God has given his Holy Spirit to me. How do I know that God loves me? Because Jesus has died on the cross for me when I was a sinner, when I was an enemy, when I was godless. When I was at my worst, God gave his best for me. Paul doesn't let the argument go. And he says, don't you realise that bringing you to glory is comparatively lesser? The greater is that he has reconciled you when you were an enemy Now you are a child, he will save you. So Paul wants us to be absolutely clear that the ultimate fruit of justification is hope and hope will be fulfilled because of God's great love. So Paul wants you to be sure. So my friends at the gym who see assurance, which is presumption, which is sin, must break the apostle's heart because you can be sure The person who says, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a very good one, doesn't understand what it means to be a Christian. I stand in a perfect relationship of God based on the work of my substitute by grace, Jesus Christ. I'm not perfect. I know I'm a failure. So are we all. And yet we stand perfectly because Jesus is a perfect redeemer, a perfect saviour. And we stand on that basis alone. And that's, that's the way this passage works. Now, if you go to the end, Paul now comes in chapter 5 to the very end, and he says, therefore, verse 18, as one trespass, that is Adam's trespass, led to condemnation for all, so that it spread through us all, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. What is Paul saying here? He is saying the way you are condemned is very similar to the way we are justified. I am condemned because I'm born in Adam and Adam's trespass is counted as mine. And therefore, this is the doctrine of original sin. Before I even sin, I'm already condemned because I'm born into Adam. I'm born with his fallen nature. But do you see that it's as, it's as though God's, uh, Adam's condemnation is debited to me. But now Paul says, don't you see that through the one act of righteousness, that is Jesus Christ, leads to justification for all men because those who are in Christ have his act of justification and righteousness credited to you. So my biggest problem is that I'm born into Adam. The only way out of that is that I'm born into Christ. And through faith, I move camps from Adam's person to be Christ's person. 
For as, verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners, so by Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in order to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You see, the law made it clear what sin was, so that as sin reigned in death because of Adam, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have one Adam, we are born into that Adam, we have a second Adam to the fight who comes... And we are transferred into his camp by grace through faith in Jesus. And we now stand as Adams or Christ. And we stand in a perfect relationship with God based on the work of our Lord Jesus. Now, if you're preaching this, Paul goes on to say, but Billy, you may ask. Isn't, isn't verse chapter 6, verse 1 the very question you want to ask? And it's the very question at our church we've just done eight weeks on Galatians. It's very similar to here. And you can hear the parents. So in church, at our church, we have the teenagers all there when I preach. And the parents are saying, yes, but you better tell them how they are to live. You know, you're giving them a passport to just indulge themselves. If you take away the Ten Commandments, that's very dangerous. But you don't bring the Ten Commandments in because we're not under law. Now look at what Paul says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? If sin causes an increase in grace, well, then why not just sin? Because the more we sin, the more grace we need. No, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Am I being interpreted, Paul says, and no doubt he's defending himself against this charge. Well, he's a false apostle. His gospel is inadequate and false. If you follow what Paul says, you will live indulgently. If you're not guided by the law, then you'll just suit yourself and you'll live in license. And that's not right. Paul says, no. Whatever I'm saying, it is not leading to an increase to sin because what I want you to see is that you died to sin. Now, look, here is the issue. I always imagine when I'm preaching our church that I'm preaching to an 18-year-old young man. Now, here he is. He comes and he says to me, Pastor Cook, I've been a Christian for two years. I find sin and temptation very real and I find it very difficult to resist. What should I do? I do not tell him to go to the commandments because they're no help to you. They are a help in that they define what sin is. They are a help because they identify that I've got a problem. I'm a sinner. But I remind him that he is now in Christ. And do you realise that when you came to Jesus, you died? Death is the answer. Death is the answer to our battle with temptation. Because with great respect, of course, the person who is dead has no problem with temptation, do they? They don't. They are totally resistant to it. And Paul is here using three illustrations to show that you died. And the first illustration is there, it is baptism. Do you not know when you're initiated into Christ, verse 3, that all of us who've been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the God, we might come to newness of life. Now, of course, Paul isn't talking about going under the water. Uh, We're Presbyterians, aren't we? We're Anglicans. Just a little (laughs) sprinkling on the head. But, But see the image. The image is you go under. You're dead and buried. Now you come up to new life. Now, you see, baptism, the way you're initiated into Christ, is an illustration of death. He died to sin, you die. He died for sin, you die to sin. Now, Paul's saying baptism is like that. Therefore, verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but he now lives life to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is an amazing verse. If it's your Bible, underline it. Because it seems to me that is the enormous difference between Christianity and every other religion there in Chapman verse 11. Why so? A friend of mine has a graph 
and you can see all the moods of verbs in Romans. And the verbs that tell you what God has done are blue. And the whole of Romans 1 to 6 up to this point is blue. And the verbs that tell you what you must do are red. And this, in verse 11, is the first red mark. For the first time, you're being told what to do. You see, it's an enormous change, isn't it? That when you, you, we, we teach our children this, and yet it is at the core of everything we believe about the Christian gospel. That religion tells you what you must do. Biblical gospel tells you what God has done. That is the difference. And Romans is all about, up to this point, what God has done. And now Paul tells you what you must do in response. And that is in verse 11. And notice, you do something with your mind. You are to, literally, he says, make this calculation. So it's black and white, it's objective, doesn't matter how you feel. You also must calculate yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. I'm no longer responsive to sin because I died with Christ when I was initiated into him and I was raised to a new life. Now, verse 15, Paul goes on, same question virtually. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? No. And he takes us now to the slave market. You know what it's like, verse 18. Having been set free from sin, we've become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Just as once you presented yourselves as slaves to impurity, impurity was your master, and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. You see, now you went to the slave master lawlessness, but now you are to go to the slave master righteousness. You're dead to one master and alive to the other. For the wages of sin, verse 23, is death. That's what that master does for you. Sin, but the free gift of God is eternal life. That's what that master does for you. You're dead to one and you're alive to the other. Now then, here's your third illustration of death. And if chapter 7, verse 3, Paul talks about, verse 2, Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage, and she is free to marry another. You see, how can a partner remarry by the death of the first partner makes the marriage of the, remarriage of the second partner legitimate? Death makes a difference. Death illustrated by baptism. Death illustrated by mastery. In the slave market. Now, death of one spouse making legitimate the remarriage of the other. And now Paul says, verse 6 Now we are released from the law, we've died to that, and we, which held us captive, so that we now serve under the, we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. I'm dead to one and alive to the other. Now, look, the key young man is this. The key is not to go back to the law. The key is to remind yourself in the power of the Holy Spirit that you are dead with Jesus to that old sin nature and keep saying no to it. The key to you, the key to the battle against sin and temptation is to recognise that you have really died and the life you live, you now live to God and keep reminding yourself of that. Now, Paul goes on, chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? What then shall we say? Am I saying that the law is sinful? By no means. Verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of, uh, of covetousness, of sin. So he's saying that the law is not sin. But verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved death to me. Why? Because I couldn't do it. For sin, verse 11, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, you see, the law was no help except it identified sin for me and identified me as a sinner. So I go out there to fill my cup 
with cold water over at that uh, water fountain. And what does it say? No spitting or washing hands. I hadn't thought of it. Mm. No spitting. You see, the law. What's the problem? It's a very good law. But I'm the problem. Uh, I've got a sinful nature. And I want to break it. Now, that is what Paul is talking about here. So he says in verse 15, I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not, verse 19, do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin that's dwelling within me. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Now, friends, if you've read Romans, you'll know that this is the area of great controversy. Who is Paul talking about? Is he talking about his present state as a Christian or is he talking about his pre-Christian state when he was a Pharisee? And, you, and of course, Calvin and F.F. F. Bruce and greats like that argue that this is the experience of too many Christians to say it's not the Christian experience. It's one of constant defeat. And it may well be that that's the way you interpret it. I don't interpret it that way. I cannot understand if you just stick with me at this point because we're looking at something which is quite difficult. But I'm not, I'm not being outspoken about it. Look back to chapter 6, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, that is true of us. It doesn't mean that we are perfect. Look over to chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, I simply cannot make sense if Paul, in verse 24 of chapter 7 is speaking of himself because he says in 19, I never do the good I want, but the evil I always do is what I end up doing. I cannot see that both those descriptions in chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8, all those descriptions are talking about the same man. I therefore take it that in chapter 7, Paul is talking about his pre-Christian experience as a Pharisee, as a Jew who sought to keep the law, but who could never do it. And now, through the Spirit, the Apostle Paul is saying, here is the Christian experience. We're not perfect, but we are being led by the Holy Spirit in the assault against the flesh. Well, you can talk about that later, but there are books and books on that. Uh, I think I explained that position in that little book on Romans, but you can get what the others have to say as well. But you've got to work that out if, if, the, if that's an issue to you. I personally can't make sense of chapter 6, 7 and 8 unless I see that in chapter 7 he's talking about his pre-Christian experience. Now let's come to chapter 8 because chapter 8 is a most wonderful pastoral chapter. I want you to notice that again, here is the second therefore in Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Uh, Again, Paul comes back to justification. He never leaves it. And so when I'm reading the Bible with Ken, every week we'd come back to justification. He never leaves it. We must never think that justification is first principles and we graduate in our maturity on. We never graduate beyond the gospel. And we need to come back to these first principles. Condemnation and justification will never go together. If you are justified through faith in Jesus, there is no condemnation to you. Now, Paul is anticipating the difficulty that his Roman church friends are having. Question one, will my past ever come back to bite me? Question two, in this battle against the sin nature, I'm in real conflict. Am I well enough resourced? Question three, there are so many confronting experiences in first century Rome, do any of them have the potential to cut me off from God? And it is these three questions that the Apostle Paul is answering here in Romans 8. 
And the first one in verses 1 to 4, the Apostle Paul tells us the past will never come back to accuse you. You see, it's a wonderful chapter, isn't it? Um, I love going on safaris. I've been on a few safaris, animal safaris in Africa, just to look at the animals and wildlife in Africa. The animal I love the most is the giraffe. And the giraffe, when you go to the game parks, you'll notice that the giraffes are also the favourite of the lion because you'll often see the skeleton of the giraffe lying being picked away by the lion or the vultures. Big rib cage and a long neck. But the giraffe has three advantages over the lion. One, he's well camouflaged. Two, he's, with his hind legs, he can kill the lion coming from behind. And three, he's got a very high view of things and can see the lion coming from a long distance away. And I like to think of Romans 8 as the giraffe chapter of Romans. Paul's giving us the big view from eternity to eternity. He's taking us to past, present and future. Verses 1 to 4, into the past. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, for the law of the spirit of life, the gospel, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law which accused you. For God has done what the law, weakened by our sinful nature, could not do. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice Jesus didn't come sinfully, but he came like sinful flesh and for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who work not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, the Lord Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly so that when he died, he did not deserve it. And Paul says that his death was an offering for sin. And therefore, the righteous requirement of the law, verse 4, is fulfilled on our behalf. Therefore, you can be sure that your past will never come back and accuse you and bite you. Because Jesus, by his coming as a real man to die in our place, has dealt with the guilt of your past. None of you would want your past displayed here on PowerPoint. But the past is gone. And Jesus has dealt with it. Question two. Well now, am I well enough resourced in this battle against the sin nature? All of a sudden, when I become a Christian, I realise that there's real turmoil going on within me. There's a sin nature and there's the spirit. John White, when he wrote his book on Christian living, called it the fight. There's a fight, a civil war going on. Augustine said, I've become a problem to myself because I'm aware that there are two forces within me. Now look at what Paul is saying here. You can be sure that you have the Holy Spirit because of the work of Jesus. And there are more references here to the Holy Spirit than to in the totality of the other chapters of Romans. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, the sin nature, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the effect of sin, yet the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, because of what Jesus has done, not only do we have our sin forgiven, but we are given the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So on the day of Pentecost, Peter could say, repent and be baptised, you'll have your sins forgiven and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, you need to know that you are very well resourced for this battle because you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And verse 11, just as he animated the Lord Jesus to life, he also will lead you in the way of life. So then, brothers, verse 12, we are debtors, we are obligated not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You owe nothing to your flesh. 
When was the last time you gave into temptation and you were so grateful that you did? The flesh is a liar. You don't owe the flesh anything because it's always lying to you. And when you give into it, you'll always be sorry you did. So Paul says, you don't owe anything to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, it will just end in death. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I'm dead in Christ. I've been raised to new life. My baptism, the slave market and marriage is an example of it. And now I see that I'm to continue to count myself dead and alive to Christ Jesus. And it is the Holy Spirit supernaturally that helps me to see that. This is just not a matter of self-will. So the question for us is whatever position you take on the Holy Spirit, are you aware of him living in you? And are you confident in him to do his work? And that is why I think so many parents will run back to the Ten Commandments as the guardian of their children that they will not lapse into licentiousness because they do not trust the Holy Spirit to do his work. And the Holy Spirit living in you leads you in the battle against the flesh so that you continue to put to death the deeds of the body. For look what he says, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now keep your finger there and let's just look at Galatians. The only other time the Apostle Paul uses that expression, led. Uh, In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Sorry, verse 18. Galatians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now notice, he's not talking about, well, the Spirit led me to marry this person or the Spirit led me to live in KL or the Spirit led me to be an engineer. the, The leading of the Spirit is a moral leading. The Spirit leads you to say no to the flesh. And so he's leading you along. And notice that in that section, Galatians 5, that Paul is driving you to the Spirit. He's not driving you to the law. The regulation of your life is the Spirit who drives you back to the cross of Jesus. So I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So am I well enough resourced? Yes, you have the Holy Spirit. He animates you. He leads you in the battle against temptation. But more than that, look at verse 15 of chapter 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, and by him he enables us to cry, Abba, Father. And when you cry, Abba, Father, you know you are crying, Abba, Father, because the spirit is enabling you to do that. And if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God. And notice verse 22, all of creation, look at verse 22, has been groaning. And verse 23, we ourselves groan as we live in this fallen creation. But verse 26, the spirit intercedes. He helps us as we pray with groans too deep for words. You have the Holy Spirit. He is a great resource. He is a person. He is the third person of the Godhead. He is God, the Holy Spirit, and he lives in you and he leads you. And he leads you to say no to the flesh. And he reminds you that you're God's child and he reminds you that you have a great inheritance. And even when you do not know how to pray because of the complexities of life, he intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. You have the Holy Spirit in you. But Paul, he's giving us the giraffe's view. Look, he comes at verse 28. And we know, he says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That is, for those who have been called according to his purpose. See, this is his final conclusion. What about the future? Can God's purposes be frustrated by the future? This is what he says. Let me read the verse as it is in the original Greek. And we know that for those who love God, God is at work in all things for their good, that is, those who are called according to his purpose. So it's pretty much what the ESV says. But I want you to notice the sandwich. He describes those for whom God thus works. It is those who love God, 
the filling, God works in all things for their good, that is, those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we just had a sandwich this morning. Bread, egg, bread. Bread, egg, bread. So here, identity of me, those for whom God loves, love, uh, who love God. The filling, God works in all things for their good. Second slice of bread, those who are called according to his purpose. Because every great truth can be distorted. And so Paul wants to protect this great truth. This is not a universal principle. This is not an impersonal principle. People can just say, oh, well, everything works out all right in the end. No, it doesn't. But for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, they can be sure that God is at work in all things for good. A business collapse, a lack of recognition which you deserved, a random cell out of control in my body, a terrible act of pain, you name it. A a promotion that you should have got but you didn't. Then look at this verse. Notice how comprehensive, and we know all things. God is at work in all things for good if you're in Christ. Now, if you're not in Christ, luck rules, chance rules, fate rules. You're on your own. But this is a precious truth for God's people. But look in verse 29, because now Paul tells us what is the good that God is always working for. For those whom he foreknew, that is, he takes us to eternity past, he predestined, he gave them the destiny that you should be conformed to the image of his son in order that Jesus, he, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, there is God's great purpose for you and me, one that we should come into Christ and now that we should be like Jesus And Jesus has the moral likeness in the family and we are growing to be like our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And God is using all things to make me like him. You see, the future is assured because God is in control of all things. And look at verse 30, those whom he gave this destiny to, well, he called them. And those he called, that is, he called you to hear Christ, to come to Christ. And those he called, he set right with himself. And those he set right with himself, he also glorified. Look at that verse, because glorification is future. But Paul says it is that certain that he puts it in the past tense as though it's already happened. It's done. But it's not done yet. We know that glorification is coming in the future. But Paul said it is that certain. Look, you you don't doubt, therefore, that those three verses, 28 to 30, are among the most wonderfully comforting verses for the people of God. Your future is assured. Nothing can disrupt the purpose of God to make you like Christ. Indeed, everything that is in your experience in the coming 20, 30, 40, 50 years is entirely designed by your creator and recreator to make you like Jesus, that you should be conformed to the image of his son. Qualification, who, for whom does God thus work? Qualification, what is the good? And Paul speaks like that. And then he finishes off in this wonderful way. What shall we say to these things? Here's the questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son. So won't he give us all things? Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Will there be someone there who's a clever barrister on judgment day? No, it is God who justifies. Who is condemned? Christ Jesus, who is the one who died more than that was raised, is at the right hand of God. The tribunal's on your side. God the Father, the judge, Jesus Christ, the Son at his right hand. They're both for you. Who, verse 35, shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger. Sort. Well, these, these are things I wouldn't choose for myself. He quotes from Psalm 44. For your sake, because I'm a believer, I'm coming under dreadful persecution. The issue is not why tomorrow morning and tomorrow night in church we're looking at why do the wicked do so well? But Psalm 44 says, why do the righteous do so badly? For your sake, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says none of those things can separate us from the love of God. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's the giraffe's eye view. The key to holiness, the key to sanctification, the law's no help. Well, I know the law's no help to bring me to God. Well, maybe the law's a help to, to make me might like Jesus. No, the law's no help. 
Paul reminds you it's the spirit, just as he does in Galatians. So this idea, and I, I hear it often in my own denomination, that the law shows me that I'm short of God's righteous standard and it drives me to Christ. It is, one writer said, the perfect storm which drives me to Jesus. That's true. And now I'm saved through Jesus, my sin is forgiven, and he gives me the Holy Spirit. And now what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, some say he drives me back to the law, the Ten Commandments. No, he doesn't. The Holy Spirit drives me back to the pattern of Jesus' life and death. And the fruit of the Spirit, you'll know, is a perfect portrait of Jesus, to be godly like Jesus. And so the exhortations of the New Testament are real exhortations for us. Well, chapter 9, we better get going. I am speaking, look at this, incredible. And remember that it wasn't until the 13th century that chapters were added. So forget the chapter divisions, read on. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now listen to this, Paul's saying, nothing can separate, we are more than conquerors. Oh, look I tell you, I'm so sorry about this. He goes from up here to down here. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ in, love of God in Christ. Look at verse 3, but I wish I were cut off from Christ. There's a great contrast, isn't there? For the sake of my brother's Israel. So do I hear someone say that if God was not faithful to Israel in the old covenant, how can we trust him to be faithful to us in the new covenant? If God's got a track record of faithlessness to Israel, well, surely then we can't expect him to be faithful to us. But, verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not all Israel are saved. Not all Israel are Israel. Not all the sons of Abraham are sons of promise. Ishmael was a natural son of Abraham. But then along comes Isaac. He's the child of promise. So so Paul is saying the fact that Israel are not all saved is not a reflection on God's faithfulness. Rather, God has never intended that everyone be saved, but that a a remnant within Israel be saved. And so he quotes in verses 11 to 12, um, and Rebekah, not only so, but Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, verse 10. They were not yet born, and before they'd done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, She was told, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, how can that be fair? Even before they were out of the womb. I hated Esau, but my purpose was with Jacob. You see, God's got a purpose. What then shall we say? Verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Well then, verse 19, if that's the case, that God is sovereign in the exercise of his mercy and his compassion, you will say to me then, verse 19, why does he still find fault with us? Because if I'm not elect, why is that a reflection on me? For who can resist his will? Now, you see, you can see the logic of this. God is faithful. He never intended to save all. He always had a line of elect through whom he was going to bring salvation. Now, here is the example. Esau and Jacob. God chose the line of Jacob as the line of promise. How did he do that? Esau hadn't had an opportunity to earn or not earn. Neither did Jacob. God did this on the basis of his own choice. Is this unjust? No, it is not unjust because God can be, none of us deserve God's mercy and therefore God can grant his mercy to whomever he chooses. Now, therefore, well then why does he blame me if I'm not the object of his mercy? That's verse 19. Do you see the argument? Now, notice, friends, if you come along, as a man did to me recently, and said, oh, well, I believe in human free will. Do you believe in human free will? Because if you believe in human free will, rip Romans 9 out of your Bible. You don't need it. Because if human free will, Pharaoh got what he deserved, didn't he? Pharaoh just did because he decided to oppose God. Free will. 
There is no free will, and the point here is that if you introduce free will, you don't have this problem. Everybody is getting exactly what their will determines they should get. If they reject God, they get wrath. If they accept God, well, they get blessing. But he is saying here that is not the way it is because God is sovereign in the exercise of his choice. And the answer, which humbles us, verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to the moulder, why have you made me like this? The clay complaining to the potter. What if? What is God's great purpose? Why doesn't he just save everyone? Because God has a greater purpose than the salvation of everyone. Verse 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for his glory. God is showing, therefore, the full extent of his character. He is showing his wrath and he is showing his patience and mercy. And both display that. And so all glory to him because I see that he is a just God He is a God who will come in wrath and I see that he is a God who exercises great patience and great mercy as well. Now, I just want you to go now, what shall we say? Verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. And the apostle says, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, I want you to notice chapter 10 does not begin a new chapter. Paul is just going on. God is sovereign in the exercise of his choice. He will choose and elect people to be his. What does that do to us? Well, if God's going to choose the elect people, there's nothing we can do about it. We can't add to it or take away from it. So we'll do nothing. But look at what Paul says. He says in what we call chapter 10, verse 3, his heart's desire and prayer is for Israel that they may be saved. For being ignorant, verse 3, of the righteousness that comes from God, they sought to establish their own and they did not submit to God's righteousness. What is the problem of Israel? It stubbornly resisted the righteousness that is in Christ and turned to the law and sought to earn righteousness by law. And that's the problem with Israel. For verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. Therefore, what Moses is saying is do the commandment and you'll live. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. But verse 6, the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. You see what he's saying? The righteousness that is by faith recognises what God has done. You do not have to go up into heaven to bring Jesus down. He came down in the incarnation. You do not have to go down to bring Jesus up. He was raised up. The incarnation and the resurrection are what God has done. And these two ways ahead through what you do or trusting in what God has done is the only way that people have ever thought of coming into right relationship with God. Now, notice verse 6. Do not say in your heart, but what does it say? Verse 8. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What you believe in your heart will be found on your mouth. And if your heart and mouth agree with the resurrection of Jesus and he's confessed as Lord, you will be saved. Now, notice verse 13, Paul quotes, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, but how can they call unless they believe? And how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear without someone preaching? And how can they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful of the feet of those who preach the good news. 
But have they not all obeyed the gospel? Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So here comes faith. How does faith come? From hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In other words, Paul says that God's election is unconditional. He is sovereign in choosing. How can we therefore see people saved? We need to send preachers who preach so that there is a hearing, so that there is a believing, so that there is a calling on the name of the Lord so that they'll be saved. For he says there, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So you put those two things together, what we call nine and ten, and there you have the true picture. The true picture here is a great call to mission, isn't it? Yes, the sovereignty of God in choosing his own is a fact. Does that destroy the need for prayer and evangelism? No, that makes possible the effectiveness of prayer and evangelism. If human free will reigns supreme, I'll pray to human free will. It depends on God and his mercy. And therefore that makes our evangelism and our mission worthwhile. It doesn't depend on me and my ability or your ability to understand. It depends on God's mercy. And God saves people as they hear this wonderful gospel of his. And he brings people into the kingdom. So send people, go, preach, so there can be a hearing, a believing, and a calling on the name of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, you and I are illustrations of the effectiveness of that great gospel in bringing people to faith. But do not be ignorant about this. The reason people come to faith is because of the sovereign, powerful, unconditional election of God that somehow when I hear this gospel, my deaf ears are unstopped and my blind eyes are uncovered. All glory to him. He's brought me to faith in his son. He's done it not as an award, not because I deserve it. And when I get to heaven, it will be all glory to him, not glory to him and me, because salvation is his work from beginning to end. Does that mean we sit back and do nothing? No, look at Romans 6 to 8. We walk in the spirit. The Spirit reminds us we've died. The Spirit leads us to put to death the misdeeds of the body. So we're active participants in this. No, let go and let God. You get out with the gospel. Have those beautiful feet. But know that it is the sovereign God who who elects people and chooses people to life. Know that. So go in that confidence. So remember that the Lord could say to Paul when he was in Corinth, you stay in this city. Don't be afraid and don't be silent. Why? Because I have many people in this place and I'm going to call them out as you preach the good news to them. Well, let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for these great words uh, we echo with our Apostle. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who who has been his counsellor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from you and through you and to you are all things, and to you be glory forever. Amen.